Terra incognita speculator. Terra incognita speculator. Welcome to this month's Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. I'm your host Keith Stevenson, and put simply, Terra Incognita is the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it. And please visit tisf.com.au for links to our featured authors' website and publications. This month's author is Brendan Duffy. Brendan's writing, like Brendan himself, is quick-witted, cornucopic and slyly entertaining. Amongst his many published works, he scooped a couple of science fiction short story Aurealis Awards, one of which he won for his story for TISF, A Louder Echo, a mind-bending romp that fuses genetic engineering with early Enlightenment concepts about the origins of life. The intelligence which can reproduce the lost claw of a crayfish can reproduce the entire animal. Nicholas Hartsoker, 1722 My enraptured throng of lesser animalia had finally formed their sections and were warming up under the chair. Crickets and beetles, moths and frogs, all rehearsing scales, practising squawks and squeals, creaks and croaks. A brilliant pre-operatic cacophony abuzz with acoustic anticipation. I tapped the baton to the lectern, and the hubbub gradually quietened as compound and complex eyes turned to focus on me. Finally there was silence. I threw to the string section and opened my favourite opera, Il Babier la Seville. I commanded the chirping woodwind with decisive fervour, lifted the percussive beatings of wings to punctuate the tempo, and introduced the toad's croaking baritone. Through my baton, the cicadas and crickets of the string section hinted at more complex motifs to come. I conducted this magnificent orchestra with a poignant aplomb, and built the piece to its aria, Largo al Factotum, where Figaro sings his famous solo. Of course, I was Figaro. It was ecstatic, and I found myself singing the aria, modified to accommodate my ultra-falsetto, with a passionate gusto. I had just thrown across to the big bugs of the brass when I was prized from my reverie. Something new, a smell, a new smell. My master had just bought some strange kind of food. It was fresh and richly aromatic, hypnotic, reaching even this deep into the cellars to find me. Wrenched from my solo, I ditched the philharmonic and scampered across cold flagstone in dark workshops. I rushed upstairs, crept past the kitchen and larders, ran through empty halls with closed doors, and then stole into the parlour. There was no one to be seen, but the room was warm. A welcoming fire crackled in the hearth. My master had left this wondrous thing up on the table, so I climbed arm over arm up the table leg and then hauled myself over onto the tabletop. Before me was a sight I had never before beheld, but I'd had my suspicions. I guessed it was a gigantic cob of bread, because I'd heard tell of such things. The giant loaf, still steaming from the baker's oven, rested on a wooden cutting board. My mouth watered. I looked about. Shadows danced across the walls, urging me to eat. Little grains embedded in the crust stared seductively, 
They winked at me in the flickering light. Mesmerised, I couldn't break their gaze. I staggered towards the awesome boulder of bread and embraced it. I hugged a warm wall of food. I was so hungry and it begged me to eat it. So I quietly chewed a window through the crust and then burrowed into the fluffy interior. By the time I was sated, I had eaten my way into the centre of the loaf and lay in a cosy hollowed den. It was soft, warm and dreamy. And feeling tired from my repast, I belched, rubbed my swollen purple tummy and then curled up with a soft lump of fluffy and slept. I awoke to the sound of my master's voice and another, more authoritative tone, a resonant voice used to unquestioning respect. It spoke thus. Lazaro, the church's views on generation are founded on the teachings of Aristotle and the ancients. All this talk of preformation is dangerous. I don't like the unrest and division it's causing. So tell me of your investigations. Do you think it's true, or is it just some new Protestant blasphemy? I have long suspected the truth in preformation, spoke my careful master. The works of all the church's great scientists actually imply this axiom, if you look carefully. Continue, said the older voice. Well, all animals of all species that would ever walk God's earth were formed aborigine mundi by the almighty creator's loving hand during the six days of creation. And these were tenderly placed inside each other within the first of each respective kind and preordained to unfold down the generations to come. The preformation was a work done at a single stroke by his adorable will. Ah, a beautiful theory, said the older voice. It's more than a theory, said my master. I have made some interesting observations using careful modifications to Leeuwenhoek's microscope and to his methodologies. Well, the Protestants are saying that semen contains little animals. So tell me, have you seen these eels of man? I have seen them, but they are not eels. They're animalcules, spermatic vermiculi, worms. Now, this subject was my master's passion, but his enthusiasm was dampened by an impatient, patronising tone. It meant he was speaking to someone who didn't agree with him. Sometimes he called them people who don't use proper scientific methodology. Other times he called them priests. He despised the clergy for their blind, heavy-handedness, proposing interpretations of the Bible and calling all else heresy. My master had rigorously taught me proper scientific methodology, and I wondered if I should likewise educate this priest. Make exhaustive observations of different sides of the argument, then interpret them by the shining light of the Bible, so you aren't executed by ignorant zealots. My master and I had spent many an evening in the laboratory examining diagrams drawn by Europe's finest scientists and worst blasphemers, poring over secret texts by alchemists and investigators. My master had performed experiments on generation many, many times, and he'd documented what he called the empirical proof. Together we'd repeated the experiments of Buffon and Needham, my master precisely determining where they went wrong and carefully demonstrating it to me, he often cursing and swearing and me often joining in once I learned how. My master told me that I was his magnum opus. I practiced my sourest condescending expression while this obviously foolish priest continued to dispute with my master. 
It's just as Aristotle says, and Buffon, exclaimed this priest. When higher animals die, they decompose and spontaneously revert back into the lesser animals from which they arose, worms and flies. Vermiparous generation. All life springs forth from worms. No, 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 not like Aristotle. Well, a little like Aristotle, spoke my master. But there is no spontaneous generation. Meat left protected in a mesh enclosure does not spontaneously sprout worms and flies upon decomposing. And infusions of broth enclosed in glass bulbs do not spontaneously ferment. Aristotle is wrong. Something cannot spring from nothing. Thus, the theory of preformation must be correct. Just as the caterpillar contains the chrysalis, which contains the butterfly, and just as the tadpole unfolds to become a frog, these spermatic worms are human worms that generate humans. The head of each spermatic worm contains a little preformed mannequin waiting to be born. In woman, they find nurture to become man. I have seen it. You have seen the little man? Yes, as have others. Dallampatius documents that he's even seen spermatic vermiculi throw off their skins to reveal complete miniature men dancing. In fact, I've examined the testes of many animals and have seen smaller animals of their type within their spermatic worms. But I have also examined the ovaries of many animals. They also appear to contain small animals, so I need a better lens. Preformation is true. The only question remaining is whom God chose to bear this burden, man or woman, animalcule or ovary. Now Adam was the first man, but we are all born of woman, like a great unfolding. Bah! It's obvious. The race of man is not called woman. A woman's role is to bear a man's children. If preformation is true, it must be through the male. And then my master spoke. But to provide conclusive proof of animalculist preformation, I must also disprove ovist preformation. Ovism must be fully investigated to be refuted just to be sure. Nah, that is not necessary. Ovism cannot be true. You've seen the little man. You said so yourself. Why would God choose sinful woman to be the bearer of body and soul? Six thousand years ago, God created Adam in Eden. Adam was the first man. Eve was made from him, as are all God's children. Preformed in Adam's testes was the body and soul of every person that would ever walk God's world, down through the male lineage, through all of God's children, until judgment day. Amen. He coughed wetly before continuing. <coughs> Lazaro, I don't much care for science, but those cursed Protestants are investigating preformation. Garden has made progress documenting the eels of man. He's a bishop in the Church of England. We cannot let the Protestants feather their caps with scientific innovation. Catholic superiority must be vigorously maintained and demonstrated. What notes have you made? Well, these are diagrams of my observations. I peered through my crusty window at the decrepit priest as he flipped through one of my wonderful master's notebooks. Secret drawings of dissected animals, ovaries and testes. The microscopic secrets of semen. Lazaro, isn't the collection of semen a sin against God? Well, normally yes, but when it's for science, God doesn't mind.
the old priest frowned, and then turned to the well-thumbed Essay de Dioptrique by Nicholas Hartsoker, an early animalculist. With the first renowned drawing of the little man curled up in the head of a spermatic worm. The first picture of me. He fixed my master a worried stare, then saw the forbidden recipe by Paracelsus the alchemist. The generation of homunculi, he gasped. This recipe is from a banned book. Yes, but I have proof of animalculist preformation. I have made animunculus. What? Is it dangerous? Is it an abomination in the name of our Lord? No, no, no. But I made it from spermatic worms that have never touched a woman. Then this is all we need, hissed the priest. We've beaten the Protestants at their own game. The ultimate proof of animalculous preformation. The body and soul carried within man alone. I'm not so sure. I don't think it has a soul. My ears pricked up. What was my master saying? But it must have a soul, said the priest, if animalculist preformation is true. Ah, but it failed the Turin test, answered my master. Ah, those questions they found imprinted on the holy shroud with the image of Jesus of Nazareth, said the priest. So that was what all those questions were, a test to see if I had a soul. The priest looked at the notes. Some of this writing is Arabic. Imagine if the Moors could do this, or worse, the Protestants. Are we likely to face an army of homunculi marching in the name of the heathen? I want to see this homunculus. I crawled out of the loaf and picked up the bread knife. I marched across the table towards the priest, singing a reveille and spinning the knife in my hands like an albedeer on parade. He stared in astonishment. Shalom, Malah, I said, and stood to attention before the priest, saluting. Oh, the Lord and Holy Land, it marches for Islam. He crossed himself and staggered backwards. I dropped the knife and poked out my tongue, making faces and waving my hands at my ears. By God, it has no genitalia. What are all the purple birthmarks? It looks like a tiny adult baby, one that should have been knocked on the head. He was very rude, so I did a little dance. I turned round and poked my bottom out at him, wagging it about, pointing at it. Wicked little monkey! The priest whipped out a wooden staff and smashed it down on the table exactly where I was, but I had dashed back into the loaf. I hid deep inside and buried my head in the warm fluffy, shaking from this violent outburst. That bad priest had tried to get me. Eki, behave yourself. Come out and apologise, said my master. I slowly peeked out, then rushed to my benevolent master, quaking with fear, hiding from the bad priest behind my master's huge, fleshy hand. My master patted my head until I was smiling. The priest stared. Can the homunculus see the future? he asked. Does it summon demons? No, 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 no. But it has knowledge of math and speaks many languages. It has much innate knowledge. It could scour the earth with pestilence and hellfire. It's happened before. Signor, I said with a bow to my master, then addressed the priest. The homunculus apologises, your grace, and wishes to report that it cannot see the future, and nor does it summon demons. I held my hand out to the priest. Je m'appelle Eke Homo. We shook, and he snatched his hand back. I'm feeling sick. It must be working its magics on me. He searched his hand for magic marks. It's an abomination with no parents. 
And how many parents do you have, Your Grace? I asked from the security of my master's loving hand. Two, of course, he spat, insulted and uncomfortable. And how many grandparents? Four. And how many ancestors from ten generations ago? Um, he paused and looked at the ceiling and counted fingers off. One thousand and twenty-four, I answered for him. Shortly he nodded, quiet now. And how many answers did you have at the time of Adam and Eve? He looked at me blankly. Well, according to Archbishop James Usher of Amarg, the world was created at noon on the 23rd of October, 4004 BC. The priest looked nonplussed. That's about 230 generations ago, I said. He flashed me an annoyed glance, then resumed staring at the ceiling, petitioning our Lord for mathematical assistance in his loyal servant's moment of need. While a priest was searching the ceiling, my bemused master looked at me, smiled, and quietly shook his head. The priest, my master's patron, was a fool. I could tell my master appreciated me. He loved me. I did this for him. I gazed back at my beautiful master, and he scratched behind my ear, then down my neck. It was really good, so good, I stretched my head up into the air. My master obliged, scratching under my chin. My foot started tapping up and down, in time with the scratching, and then he hit the sweet spot and I suddenly snapped and bit his forefinger. Not hard, though. I just softly brushed my teeth on the giant finger, just enough to let him know, without breaking the skin. He laughed and patted my head. That's enough, he whispered, indicating the still-counting priest. I approached the priest. How big was Eden? Bigger than Zanzibar? I laughed. Standing room only. No room to move. But where did all those people go? The priest looked at me with scorn, then turned back to his fingers, determined. I did a little dance behind his back. I'd put him out of his misery soon. I readied the sword for the mercy blow. At some stage, the number of ancestors you have is larger than the number of people alive on God's earth. True, he turned and looked from me to my master. But how could that be so? Well, I said, ancestors traced down one line are also ancestors traced down others, so they're multiply represented. Oh, I see, he nodded, then looked confused again. But how can that be? I held him there for a moment and then brought the blade down. They were all having sexual congress with each other. <gasps> the priest's mouth fell open. Holy Lord, it is a Protestant! He crossed himself again. Oh my, this is complicated. Tomorrow I'll give it a Catholic baptism and get it into a confessional. It talks like the devil itself. The priest stood and hurried to the door, shaking his head. We must beat Garden. Animalculist preformation is true, so this thing must have a soul. Make it sit the Turin test again, he looked back. And Lazaro, my son, if it fails the test, it is not one of God's preformed. Therefore, it is an abomination, and you are a blaspheming alchemist, and I am an alchemist's exchequer, and we're all in trouble. I will have a new Venetian lens ground to your specifications. Use it to further science wisely. As for you, little Eke, it was very crowded in Eden. Every one of God's children was there, even you. With a toothy smile, I scampered across the cold flagstones to where my glorious master worked. The workshop floor was strewn with straw and sawdust, offcuts from his contraption. I crept up behind my master's towering form, 
He was hunched over some blueprints at his bench, cursing Leavenhook for a buffoon. He sat amongst a confusing system of calipers, vices, wires and cords, all strung about a wooden framework of dials and pulleys. A great many lenses of specially ground Venetian glass hung in the web, sparkling like morning dew. The largest, the new great lens, was like a smooth aquamarine from a king's crown, as large as an eyeball. This would be funny, and my master would think me very smart. It should help him see the ridiculous nature of ovism. I could barely contain my mirth as I carried the huge doll in my purple arms. The anticipation was just too much. A snigger escaped my thick red lips and I froze, hands on mouth, almost dropping the wooden doll. Fortunately, my master didn't hear because just at that moment he fussed with the microscope settings. The sound of my glee was covered by the clatter and creak of cords and pulleys as my clever master lowered one of his new lenses into the microscope. I almost burst out laughing from my joke. My master would love it. All would be forgiven and he would pronounce me of soul. He turned away from his workbench to face whence I had come. I crept behind his towering form, snuck under the workbench and saw a weird knot of wood protruding from the chair leg. It smelt like some strange animal, exotic and hairy. Distracted, I put the doll down and rubbed my head back and forth against the knot. I closed my eyes and got stuck into an itchy bit behind my ear. It was so exhilarating, I found myself singing Figaro's aria from where I'd previously left off with the Philharmonic. Somehow my sotto voce must have become grosso, and my master looked about. Eke! Eke! my master called, deep and rumbling. I grabbed the doll and climbed up the bookcase shelf by shelf, finally lugging the heavy doll out onto the bench top. Exhausted, I leaned on the doll. My master had his back to me, facing the door. Eke, he called. Eke, come help align the lenses. Oh, my master was a genius, the greatest thinker in Europe, patronised by royalty and the church. Beneath the microscope, a doe lay on blocks of packed snow, limbs bound. Her sleek fur was brown with small white spots, etherized to insensibility. She lay with her side flayed open, layers of skin and muscle pinned back. They revealed her internal workings, God's secrets, and an ovary, the subject of my master's study. Master, what have you found? I called, trying to obscure the doll with my body. Hey, he spun about to face me. Oh, there you are. I think it is as I suspected, Eki. Something is carried by the female line in the ovary. He noticed I was hiding something. What have you got there? I was biting my lips, trying not to laugh. Oh, master, I have a present for you. I hoisted the Russian Matryoshka doll in my arms and carried it across the workbench to him. He took it in a great fleshy hand and examined it while I burst out laughing and danced with glee. Did you make this doll, Eke? Si, si, maestro, pavoy. My master wore his full winter costume and puffed little white clouds into the air. He turned the doll over in his great hands, admiring the craftsmanship. I had painted it to resemble an English maid. I sang a crazy song, hopping from one foot to the other, waving my gangly arms in the air. Soon he'd get the joke. But I had to try and control myself. This was serious. I tried to concentrate. The doll should keep him occupied for a while. While my master examined the doll, I slunk across the workbench to the semi-conscious deer. It was twitching and would shortly awaken. I tipped some surgeon's ether onto a rag 
and held it to the deer's nose. It relaxed, and I examined my master's apparatus. The fog of my master's breath usually condensed on the lenses as he worked, and he needed me to polish them clean. The cold didn't bother me, and my breath didn't fog, so I often worked with him and was familiar with the operation of his tools and his subject. Indeed, I was a product of them. I looked down the microscope eyepiece and fiddled with the fine focus dials, as I had seen my master do. Set on medium magnification, I saw the doze ovary in amazing detail, great swirling images of a hidden world. I swung another lens into place and focused. Inside the doze ovary were little animals, like in my master's drawings of spermatic vermiculi. They were pretty little deer, exact and precise, although not yet fully unfolded, not yet born. About the size of rice grains, they appeared as though formed of a translucent primordium. I could see their gelid insides as though each had been laid open to cross-section by my master. Eight miniature deer stood in two rows on the ovarian scaffold, presenting their innards for inspection. So it was true. Something of God's performed was carried down the female lineage too. Behind me, my master opened the doll to reveal another inside, exactly the same but smaller. He laughed, but I ignored him. I had to know more. I looked at these miniature deer, little does and bucks. I focused into the ovary of a miniature doe. I grimaced and increased the magnification, engaging the great lens. Within the gelid ovary of this miniature doe was another ovarian scaffold, and seven more deer stood upon that scaffold, tiny, awaiting their eventual birth. Deer within deer within deer, all preformed through the female lineage. I stared down through three generations, as far as I could see into the future. But what of animalculist preformation? I swapped back to the lenses of lesser magnification and scanned across the ovarian scaffold to a miniature buck. I saw the confusing vesicles in its testes, just like the drawings from my master's vivisection notebooks. I swung the great lens into place and saw the turmoil. The spermatic worms were moving too fast, but I found some sleeping ones and focused on their heads. It was hard to be sure, but inside one I glimpsed odd swirling shapes, legs kicking, a tail twitching. Was that a deer's head? I saw antlers. I played the fine focus, and there it was, a perfect little buck, hale and robust. Eager to be off, it stamped its foot, brandished its antlers, then leapt away. It vanished. There was nothing discernible left inside. No little buck staring back at me. Nothing. I gave chase, hunting the deer in other spermatic worm heads, but it was gone, like a ghost, an echo. I kept searching but found nothing, just mushy lumps at a dead end in the chain of life. It seemed that ovism was correct and animalculism was not. I beheld God's great plan with my own eyes, and it didn't include me. My vision swam. I pulled the focus back. Pretty little deer danced on their scaffolds, so miniature and perfect. I looked up at the ceiling timbers until my vision cleared. My master laughed with delight as he opened more dolls to reveal yet more dolls. Eke, you've even painted them to look like English maids. Yes, master, it's an English Russian doll. I walked across the bench top to my master.
you could have it delivered to garden in England as a present to his pregnant wife, Master, from you, from Lazaro Spallanzani, the ovist. My master bellowed, but I wasn't laughing. I rubbed my head in my leathery hands. The animalculist investigators were wrong. Garden the Protestant bishop was wrong. Males were dead ends. Dear God, the ovists were correct. My master would soon prove his new theory true, and then demonstrate it to everyone. Yes, it could be Garden's wife, and a daughter. Bravo, Eke! He held my gaze with a quizzical expression. You're a clever one. Yes, master, yes, very clever. Let me sit the Turin test again. Eke, my master chided, we've been through this before, you failed. But master, remember what the priest said, give me a second chance. I fell to my knees before my master, hands clasped together in supplication. Eke, second chances don't come into it. You're either conscious or you aren't. I administered the Turin test and caught you cheating. You had answers written all over your arms. But, Master, I'm conscious, and I'm smart, and I can make you laugh. Eke, you're not conscious. The natural beauty of flowers can inspire rapture in a man, but it doesn't mean they're conscious and have a soul. Eke, you are as wood, live, but with no soul. My master placed the Russian doll before me. It leered at me with its garish painted face. No, master, I want to sit the test again. No, Eke, it doesn't matter now. I'm currently proving that the body and soul are in the ovaries, not the spermatic worms. So you can't possibly be conscious. But, master, maybe the body is in the ovary and the soul is with the spermatic worm. Eke, you have no soul. I'm sorry. My master meant that I wasn't human. I was a monster, an abomination. I called you Eke Homo because I was sure that animalculist preformation was correct. I thought you would grow to be a man and that your innate knowledge heralded the person God had ordained you to become. I thought you were the future, but I was wrong. I'm renaming you Echo Homo for your knowledge is merely a reiteration of the past. You were simply a lesser version of your template, the man whence the seed was collected and you were made. He was a travelling musician, a vagabond, now dead. My master walked to the door. He called back over his shoulder. I'm going to make a new homunculus, this time from over, and I want you to mix the reagents. I scowled and spun away from him to look straight into the eyes of that garish Russian doll, still leering at me, mocking my hopes. This joke wasn't funny anymore. I slapped it off the table and simmered. Not the future, just a reflection of the past. My master would replace me with something better, and he wanted me to help. The priest administered my Catholic baptism in a private vestibule, but it didn't make me feel any more human or any closer to God's glory. I just felt like an awkward initiate to some esoteric venerable fraternity, some soulless imposter. Afterwards, I sang Handel's Baroque oratorios in my perfect ultra-falsetto, higher than any castrato. Notes hung in the chamber like the pure crystal spheres, and the priest closed his eyes and wept passionately. Later, he was quite jovial, and we made jokes in Latin. Then I prompted the discussion towards the intrigue of church politics. 
He told me that he didn't really care about scientific theory, just the advantages that could be secured through it. Everything has its uses, he'd said, except Ovists and except Protestants. My manic master wouldn't let me repeat the Turin test. He rushed about, ignoring my petitions. He was too busy now and had driven me out of his life so that he could concentrate on the important things. I read through his old notebooks and followed after him, clutching his early drawings of me. The little man in the head of the spermatic worm. He wasn't interested anymore. I kept out of his way, trailing quietly behind, collecting his flotsam. I occasionally observed him from my lurk in the rafters, or espied him through some ratty hole. Late one night, while skulking in the corridor, I heard a curious noise behind the oaken door to my master's chambers. I lifted back the escutcheon and peered into the keyhole-shaped light. I gazed upon my master, entertaining a lady friend in his boudoir. They were talking and laughing. Deep into the wee hours I espied them through that tarnished brassy hole, and the things I saw. Hurried whalebone fumbling, riotous shrieking, the slap of quivering pink flesh. Oh, my lascivious master! He beguiled her into quaffing copious amounts of absinthe, then sniffing from his bottle of surgeon's ether. She fainted, and he quickly had her up on the table where he had his way with her. Now I watched my wicked master do unspeakable things. I guess the collection of over isn't a sin against God either, when it's for science. There would be trouble with the church if my suicidal master continued these dangerous investigations into overst profamation. When I could watch no more, I closed my eyes and saw bundles of kindling being bound with twine by cackling, toothless hags. The next morning, my master hurried about the hallways with notes in a quill. He found me moping about near the larders. He wanted me to mix a new range of liquors, some of which I'd never heard of. He'd even made a list. I knew what he wanted. He wanted me to mix these reagents to generate a new homunculus. What would it be like playing second fiddle to some overst homunculus? My mistaken master already had a perfectly good homunculus, and he didn't need another. He sensed my reluctance. Eke, if you mix these reagents, we'll repeat the Turin test. Really? And then will I have a soul? We'll see, he said. But what of this new homunculus you wish to make? No, no, I've changed my mind. I'm not making another. It's too dangerous in the current political climate, said my surprising master. I've given up on nervous preformation, and I've stopped all of my mistaken investigations. I was wrong. Really? N'est-ce pas? Pourquoi? I followed after him. The workroom seemed different. I climbed up onto the workbench. He'd packed most of his equipment away. Only his precious microscope remained. Maybe it was true. A sheaf of papers lay neatly on his workbench, designs for a large glass bottle, some kind of complex fermentation tank for brewing. We're going to continue our early investigations, cataloguing microscopic life, he said. Oh, master, it will be just like old times. Yes, Eke, yes, he gathered up his diagrams and left. I explored his bookshelves with a renewed vigour, scanning through standard church issue, safe recommended reading, but also scientific texts. 
Among the recipe books were some interesting works, seminal texts by the ancients on spontaneous and vermiparous generation, experimental investigations by fringe alchemists into how to generate different dog breeds, how to spawn monsters, how to create golems, and how to summon demons. I saw some great works on animalculus preformation and Paracelsus's recipe, The Generation of Homunculi. I found recipes for vital fluids and prolific liquors and collected the things I'd need from the materials cabinets, solids, powders and liquids, mixtures and compounds, although I'd also need some more arcane ingredients. My master kept human specimens and essences in a special cabinet. I took the key from his desk drawer and unlocked the cabinet to reveal a glass jar atop a notebook and a formidable old leather-bound tome with brass fittings. I picked up the jar and a chill passed through me. I was looking at three gelid babies the size of rice grains, preformed fetuses extracted from the ovarian scaffold of that shrieking harlot. I opened my master's notebook and surveyed the evidence of his recent investigations. Detailed drawings of rabbit and mouse vivisection, exposed ovaries. My master had drawn the fully laden ovarian scaffold of a doe, three generations deep, just as I had seen. I examined the old tome. The gilt title read, Degeneration. The solid cover was engraved with a picture, Jove holding an open egg, from which sprang forth many different types of animals. Underneath was written the Latin inscription, Ex over omnia. From the egg, everything. The incriminating book was penned by William Harvey, a blasphemous Protestant Englander. It was the legendary first work on Ovis Preformation and was banned by the church soon after its release. I leafed through the pages. It discussed oviparous and viviparous generation and set the theoretical foundation that led to ovism. My meticulous master's dirty bookmarks were all through the section detailing the manner in which an ovist homunculus might be made in a glass fermentation tank. I couldn't believe my eyes. My deceitful master had lied to me. He hadn't stopped his investigations into ovism. He'd finished them and was now moving on to their more practical application. Not brewing ferment for microscopy, but brewing my replacement. My lying bastard master was an ovist scoundrel. He'd never give me the Turing test, and I'd never be pronounced of soul. He didn't care. He just wanted me slaving away on his potions, so he could generate his ovist homunculus. The priest would be interested to know of this. There would be trouble. I'd see to it. I wandered about the deeper sections of the cellars, feeling betrayed and desperately alone, while my master busied himself upstairs with his new glass fermentation tank. I crept between stacks of discarded notebooks and explored the piles of abandoned glassware that lay strewn about. I recognised equipment from my master's now-forgotten past, experiments I had helped him with. It was damp and cold, and I was hungry. I chewed at the bottom of my candle as it burned, but it provided grim suckle. The prey I stalked was behind a heap of old microscope pieces. I heard the tinkle of glassware and doubled back. Then I saw it, a hideous monster twice my size. No, just an ordinary bug magnified behind a glass bulb. A tasty meal. 
My prey scuttled from the glassware. I froze. A statue. David, the perfect man. Two fingers on my right hand twitched, testing the air like antennae. The bug halted, then carefully responded, and an antennae dance ensued. I played it with my lure, enticing it closer with all the right promises. Mesmerised by my lying semaphore, my prey courted its treacherous mate and slowly climbed up onto my outstretched statue arm. I sprang, ripped its head off and scoffed it down, holding its body like a tankard of juice with six twitching legs. Sated, I leisurely sipped at the tangy juices while searching among the piles of junk. I heard a desperate tapping and found a pile of sealed jars, each containing a prisoner. Victims of my cruel master's experimentation into regeneration. I couldn't prise the lids off, so I smashed each jar in turn and liberated the hungry motley crew, naming each after one of my master's rivals. I freed a tailless skink, a one-clawed crab, a three-legged salamander, a one-eared rat, a one-eyed mole, a snail missing its entire head, and a mouse with a human ear on its back. They were happy to be freed and vowed to help me. We danced in circles around smoky chemical fires, cheering and making merry. Feeling heady from the bug juice, I summoned my throng of lesser animalia and assembled the Philharmonic Orchestra. My new chums gladly joined its ranks. We spent the evening discussing generation and feasting to song, the Philharmonic supplying all our needs, although the arias were getting pretty thin with the decimation of the strings section. Amidst the revelry, I fixed a candle onto one of my master's notebooks and lit it. My shadow, big and impressive, almost a man's, fell onto the wall before me. Laughing, I danced to the music and watched my shadow dance. I scattered handfuls of sulphur and saltpetre across my master's open notebooks and waved my arms over intricate diagrams of animalcules and ovaries, dissected beasts, ink pentagrams, sigils and magic numbers, singing my favourite operatic excerpts. I danced before a mirrored glass, making faces. I turned around and wagged my ass in the mirror. Looking back, I saw it wasn't my ass, but an ugly ass face. I spun about to check my ass, but I couldn't see it properly. I had to run in circles to catch up. When I caught it, I saw that it was just my ass, and the mirror was just a mirror. With a shrug, I eased my way back into the dancing, and saw ass face in the mirror again. Chow, chow, it said. I spun about, but it was gone. I poked my ass in the mirror again. Chow, amico, si parla italiano. Si, si, I said. Echo, homo, reflection of man, it laughed, farted in an old Calabrese dialect. No, 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 no. Eke, homo. Behold the man. Echo, it said. You don't have a soul. Do you want one? Asked my asshole. No, no, I already have one. A priest said I do. A priest said. Ha! He's playing you like a pawn. You don't have a soul and you know it. So pick up that chalk and draw. Left, left. Keep going. Straight ahead. Now turn. Under its rude direction, I chalked a pentagram onto the flagstones and arranged five candles. 
Upon lighting the last, there was a great sulfurous explosion. A slopping wet pile of offal fell out of the air and filled the pentagram. Atop the pile of putrefying entrails and scabrous batwing was a stinking third goat head. My eyes watered from the stench. Its flesh pulsed, glistening with heat sheen, and motion stirred its evil eye. The Philharmonic dashed for cover. It appeared that those stupid priests were correct about some things. Ciao, Bello, I said in my oldest Italian. Laughing, it metamorphosed into an extremely handsome youth, wearing the gilt and bejeweled dress of an impeccable Calabrese noble, exquisite and ostentatious. Hail, Caesar, Chico Ghibelline, he said, in an Italian older still. He held his immaculately manicured hand forward, and we shook. Your master, Lazaro Spallanzani, is doing interesting work. He's a great Catholic scientist, a devout and learned man, once a Jesuit priest, and I'm going to get him in trouble with the church, maybe banished or burned at the stake. Hmph, get him excommunicated, and you will be in my favour. Chico examined his fingernails and smiled with indulgent pearly white beatitude. His halo brightened. A band of bright anti-worlds orbited his head, coloured souls slowly tumbling through the air like tiny glowing babies, each softly screaming distant high-pitched Latin woes. I stared at them. Oh, I want a soul. Hmm, no. Chico shook his head and the little souls jangled in my face. That won't be possible. But what would it take? I begged. What have you got to offer? Nothing. Forget it. You'd have to summon hellfire for me to pronounce you of soul. He was a seedened horse trader, diabolically cocksure. My asshole was right. As far as pronouncing me of soul, my master didn't, the priest couldn't, and Chico wouldn't. Then... I want a microscope to see further into the ovaries than my master can. Chico made a play of patting down his pockets. Unfortunately, I didn't bring a microscope with me. A great lens, then. Better than my master's. Chico waved his hand. Only what I have on me. Anyway, why a lens? Do you think that that will make him like you again? No, I already know how to make him like me, I laughed. Give me a great lens, and I will get him excommunicated. Mmm, Chico raised an eyebrow, and then nodded. So be it. He surreptitiously looked about, then opened his pantaloons. He held his perfect penis in his immaculately manicured hands, and then winced in red-faced pain as he strained and pushed. A huge lump slowly, agonizingly moved down the length of his distended member. He grimaced and gasped as blood dripped from his urethral opening. With a final demonic bellow, Chico peeled back his foreskin and passed the gigantic kidney stone into his hand, buffed and polished from its tight journey. He wiped the blood away. Whew! Chico dabbed the sweat from his brow with a gilt-embroidered pocket kerchief. Here's to excommunication. He vanished, leaving me holding the shiny, clear lens. I was the apprentice, but it was time for me to become the master. I knew how to make my fickle master like me. I'd continue his work and generate my own homunculus in my new laboratory underground. I'd show him how clever I was. 
I explored every corner of the dark catacombs, collecting bits and pieces, the legions of my philharmonic dragging them back to the new lab we created at the bottom of the staircase. I located much of my master's original equipment and recreated his early workplace. The beakers, the bulbs and burners, all arranged according to his diagrams. Candles and condensers, burettes and pipettes, droppers and stoppers. We reconstructed a microscope and fitted the great demonic lens. The Philharmonic played my favourite pieces while we worked. We ground solids to Albanoni's harpsichord concertos and mixed liquids to Mozart. I made my master's potions, his prolific liquors and vital fluids. And when the passion seized me, I conducted the Philharmonic with one hand while directing manufacture with the other as my industrious insects carried weighed portions of powders to mortars and pestles measured ounces and drams, and stirred and simmered while vapours flowed through the condenser to form their precious essences. The vapours cascaded through my head as I commanded the Philharmonic to perform Don Giovanni, a disturbing piece about a lusty, deceitful scoundrel blinded by pride. With a stroke of my baton, a bevy of bugs placed the crystal birthing dish before me. I brandished the baton as though smiting foes, as the lascivious Don slew and seduced his way through the men and women of Seville, and was finally confronted by the statue of a man he murdered. I laughed hysterically as he fearlessly invited it to dinner. With each ominous parry and riposte, the orchestra conjured minor chords of sinister portent. I conducted with oblivious fury as bottles oozed oily fluids into a swirling puddle in the dish. With the baton in one hand and a dropper of human essence in the other, I built to the moment when the colossal statue arrived for dinner. As it dragged the unrepentant Don down to the fiery pits of hell, I let a drop of human essence fall into the pearly puddle. It splashed into the greasy, swirling rainbow, and the liquids changed and congealed. By flickering candlelight I glimpsed anatomy, a gathering nativity, form condensed in scintillating colours, hands, a face, and then were gone. I sprang back and resumed conducting the piece with added fervour, pouring my energy into it, barking commands at the philharmonic. Something took shape in the liquid, a head, eyes staring straight at me, lips smiling savagely. He laughed, too, as his legs formed and he rose further from the liquid in the dish. He looked just like me, but smaller. His skin was pinkish grey with purple birthmarks, just like mine. He stood before me, whole, glistening, dripping from his spawning. He looked at his body, flexed his arms, and stepped from the birthing dish. Grazi, maestro, grazi, he said, as I administered the Turin test. Are you Homo sapiens? He flexed his little muscles. I am an echo of man, an echo of the man I am. God made man in his image, I said, but you're an echo of man made more in mine. Then I am an echo of an image of God made more in the image of an echo of man. I name you Piccolo Echo, the little echo of the man you are. Grazi, mio buono maestro. Piccolo bowed to me. We held hands and danced in a circle, singing while a philharmonic played faster. I am an echo of the man I was, and I am an echo of the man I am. Quiet, everyone, I yelled. Quiet. The hordes of chattering homunculi quietened, and I looked upon Friedrich, 
the little man who had just arisen from the birthing dish, at two centimetres tall. He was the smallest yet, a tiny echo of a man not yet born. The deeper we delved into the scaffold for our samples, the smaller were the homunculi we made, and the quieter they spoke, but the more bizarre their stories became. Generation seven spoke of the strangest wonders. We hushed as it told of the entire world at war again. Oppenheimer, Julius Robert, born in 1904. And what did he invent? I asked. The first atomic bomb. And what is that? A piece of the sun. Hmm. I'd heard this chilling story a few times now. And your brother? He designed the fuel injection for the Messerschmitt 262 jet engine. So this was your youngest brother, Hans, born in 1909? Yes. The gelid fetus I had stolen from my absent master's locked cabinet now lay beneath my microscope, submerged in a preserving buffer. My microscope, equipped with the great demonic lens, was trained onto its ovarian scaffold, focused seven generations deep into the future. The Gunther family scaffold. I looked down the eyepiece. Left, left, left. A horde of our smallest homunculi carefully adjusted the fine scrolling of the stage, scanning across from Frederick, past his siblings, to his youngest brother, the last male on the Gunther scaffold. Halt! I was looking at Hans Gunther. I gave the command. My miniature technicians began the process of delicately extracting spermatic worms from this fetus. We'd find a mannequin in his spermatic worms, and in a few hours, his echo would be arguing with the others about future history. Together, they may remember enough to draw up plans for a flying machine. I joined Piccolo and examined our map of the ovarian scaffold. We'd made homunculi from each generation and asked them about their family, the world, and anything they could remember. Piccolo was a meticulous bookkeeper, penning in names and professions as we explored this expanding family tree, cataloguing them for later reference. He also recorded a detailed history of the future they described. We never made Ovis homunculi because my master might be right. If Ovis preformation was true, they would be real people, born too early. It would alter the timing of God's divine plan, and he may send an avenging angel to correct things. We would have to replace this fetus soon, so it could bear its fruit. We only made animalculus homunculi, soulless echoes of the future, copies, using spermatic vermiculi samples taken from the testes of male fetuses on that scaffold. We were always careful not to injure or harm the fetuses, as they were yet to fulfil their destiny. One day, Hans Gunther would be born, ignorant of the echoes made from him 130 years prior. We heard noises. People were descending the stairs. Pandemonium erupted as everyone ran and hid. I stood there, dumbfounded, looking at books, recipes, chemicals, scales, measuring cylinders, pipettes, bubbling vials... Every stage of the process accounted for. I'd even automated the process by rigging pipes and taps straight to the birthing dish. It was an homunculus manufactory and looked like one. The squeaking and tittering died down and all was quiet. A small pool of ink spread across the table. Tiny ink footprints across an open page recorded the first homunculus stampede.
I turned the page. The priest stepped forward into the light. Ah, here he is. Your grace, I bowed deeply. Dear Eke, the proof of animalculous preformation, the priest patted my head. How wise I was to fund this research. The papacy shows me favour. Although, imagine what would have happened if I'd been caught funding research into Ovist preformation. We both laughed. My shadowy master huffed and stepped into the flickering light, shaking his head. You shouldn't discount Ovism so soon, he said. I heard that impatient, patronising tone taint his voice. He would unthinkingly reiterate the tired empirical rhetoric. He waved his forefinger. Other options should be investigated before being discounted. Rigorously apply proper scientific methodologies, make exhaustive observations of all aspects of the argument, then interpret the results, making the least assumptions. You proved animalculous preformation, said the priest. You proved animalculous preformation, I echoed. So say I have a soul. My master scowled at me, so I backed behind the priest's hand. But what of truth, my master asked the priest. Animalculous preformation makes the most sense, said the priest. It combines the beauty of preformation with a theory already endorsed by the church, Aristotle's vermiparous generation. Ta! Worms! Ridiculous! There is only oviparous and viviparous generation, my master scoffed, and I think that even viviparous animals actually use a form of oviparity, ex over omnia. That is a dangerous catch, cry Lazaro. But what about maternal inheritance of traits like polydactyly? It is well documented and supports the theory of ovist preformation. Also, there is pathogenesis in many aphid and skink species. No male is needed for their generation. So now you're comparing us to insects and lizards, Lazaro. But I've seen the ovarian scaffold, he said. You've seen an optical illusion caused by refraction. Lazaro, I paid you to revive animalculism and refute this growing ovism. God would not have chosen woman. It's against the church. We are the moral guardians of the flock. They are incapable of making correct choices without our guidance. A place for everything and everything in its place, Lazaro, or we'll have women as priests and scientists. And where would that get us? Your grace, I said. He possesses many arcane tomes, the intricately described works of schismatic dissidents and deluded alchemists. Blasphemers, I've seen The Second Book of Natural Magic by Giambattista della Porta. It contains the recipes How to Generate Pretty Little Dogs to Play With and How Living Creatures of Diverse Kinds May Be Mingled and Coupled Together. It's a treatise on how to warp God's creatures. He wants to create life himself. Abominations, monsters, golems and demons. The priest looked to my wayward master. It's nothing, said my master. I never made any of them. But you do not deny this, said the priest, more an accusation. No, it was an early work that contributed to the formulation of animalculous preformation theory. I had to read it to do the study that you asked for. It has the original recipe for vital fluid. He has a book, I said, called Degeneration. It is an ovus tome dedicated to making ovus homunculi. It's just another old book, my master shrugged. 
It's a dangerous work of blasphemy by an enemy of the church, I said. So is the generation of homunculi, said my master, but you don't seem to care about that. Degeneration was banned by the church, I said, penned by an Englishman, a Protestant. What? said the priest. It's in a locked cabinet in his workroom, along with samples of over he's removed from a harlot he drugged one night and operated on. Here is the key. Lies! My master made to grab the key, but the old priest held him back with a wave of his hand. The priest took the key. Continue, Eke. He's growing an ovist homunculus in a glass tank in his workroom. Lazaro, after all the help I've given you, this is how you repay me? He means to use it to prove ovist preformation theory and bring you down. This is outrageous, said the priest. No, 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 it's not true, said my lying master. Eke, why are you doing this? It was time to play for checkmate. My foolish master's ovist days were over. Your grace, I said, the ovist homunculus. My master is trying to generate a pure person, untainted by desire and sin, untainted by the physical act. Yes, the priest was fuming. What of it? Derived from woman only. Yes, with no father. When else has this happened? Immaculate conception. The priest's mouth fell open. The Messiah! He's trying to resurrect Jesus Christ? It's a Protestant conspiracy, I said. The priest staggered and leant on his staff, wide-eyed. I played him with my lure. A soulless antichrist summoning demons, hellfire, pestilence. The priest choked and spluttered, clutched at his chest, then crossed himself with the cabinet key. This has gone too far. I will not protect you now, Lazaro. I'm calling for an inquisition. You will be investigated. He hurried up the stairs, calling for his escort. Excommunicated, he bellowed. I smiled. The look of death simmered in my murderous master's eyes. I ran for cover. I saw an old box and crawled inside. Piccolo and the others were already carrying in the corner. I cowered too. Eke, what is the meaning of this? Come out, I'll get you. My master's great arm reached into the hole and patted about inside, feeling its way around the rubbish. A team of us slid a large nail from the wood as the hand approached. I charged the hand and stabbed it in the forefinger, yielding a resounding yelp. The hand ducked around wildly and grabbed Piccolo. He screamed and flailed about helplessly as it dragged him from the box. I rushed to his aid too late and was left peeking from the hole. My evil master clutched Piccolo tightly around the torso. Piccolo struggled but couldn't escape. His arms and legs were trapped. Only his head and shoulders protruded from the top of my seething master's fleshy hand, and his little purple feet kicked back and forth underneath. He held Piccolo at eye level and stared, more furious than I had ever seen. After all I've done for you, why are you doing this? You've wrecked everything. Let me go, let me go, Piccolo screamed and struggled in his grip. Eke, how could you have done this? I made you. I walked from the box, across the desktop, to confront my ignorant master. No, I made him. My confused master looked from Piccolo to me, and then back again, stunned, then surveyed the lab, noting the equipment. 
You've made another. He suddenly snatched me up too, clutching me in his other fleshy fist. I screamed and pummeled his hand with all my might, but to no avail. Which one of you is Eke? He scowled at us in turn, and we both struggled in his clenched fists. I conjured my throng of lesser animalia. They swarmed around us like a plague, and my rationalist master saw spontaneous generation occur before his astounded eyes. Attack! I screamed. Wasps stung his head as he ducked about, spitting them from his mouth. Bugs and ants crawled among his clothes and over his skin. Then I summoned my greater animalia. Malfigi, Maupetui, allez, allez, attendez-moi! All my new chums ran to the rescue. Malfigi Mouse snuck into his sleeve while Maupetui Mole disappeared up his cavernous pants leg. My ex-master jumped from foot to foot. Then Crookshank Crab scuttled up his collar and pinched him on the earlobe while Rima Rat sunk in sizes into his big toe. Leavenhook Lizard and Swamadam Salamander rushed into his robes. Lazaro hopped about, swearing and bumping into chairs. Crab swinging from his ear, Rat hanging from his toe, snarling a monculus in each hand. Swarming with insects, he wailed, Eke, how could you? I treated you like a son. The son you didn't want, I said. But I gave you life. I made you. And then I made you, I said, in my image. Lazaro followed my gaze to the homunculus in his other hand. Don't you recognize me? Piccolo laughed. Papa? Lazaro's eyes widened. His blotchy, insect-bitten face paled as he stared into Piccolo's blotchy homunculus face and saw an echo of his own. We tittered. I know what you're thinking, said Piccolo, then bit him on the thumb hard. Lazaro yelped and dropped us. We ran. And how many brothers and sisters did Olga have? There were three older sisters, then Olga, then a younger brother and sister. He gave us their names. Piccolo looked up and nodded. This was the right family. And what region of Württemberg was this? Neustad. And what was her mother's name? Think, think. I can't remember. I was too young when she died. Helsha? Helen? Helschen? We were making a generation map that led to the man called Robert Oppenheimer. We traced his family tree from the future back down to the current generation, the one alive now. Somewhere in Europe, his great-great-great-grandmother was living her life with him packed seven generations deep inside her ovaries. Helsha of Newstead, we would find her. Piccolo penciled in the last step of the generation map. I wonder what it's like in the Alps this time of year, I said. Piccolo looked up thoughtfully. He feels cold and unhappy. You know, we should mail him that English-Russian doll as a memento. It sat on the desk, leering at the both of us with its wooden glare. We tittered. I closed my eyes and beheld the future. Cinders. Cities scoured with searing atomic hellfire. And Chico with my bright and shining soul. This month's review book is The Dead Path by Stephen M. Irwin. 
Reading The Dead Path, I was continually reminded of a Stephen King-type story, which is no bad thing for a horror novel. Nicholas Close returns to Australia after the death of his wife has left his life in tatters. It feels like a backward step and stirs up even more ghosts he'd rather not think about, including the threateningly sombre woods that stand near his childhood home and which have resisted development for decades. As with King's work, there's a strong sense of place in the dead path. Close's hometown of Tolong in Queensland is well imagined. There's a real feel for its topography, the layout of streets, the landmarks it contains. It has a history, and not a particularly nice one. As the story progresses, Close enters into an unwilling confrontation with an ancient evil that lives there, an evil which has fed on the town for countless years, an evil recognised by some, but steadfastly ignored or deliberately forgotten by others. If the town is well imagined, the characters more than match up to it. Close's mum and sister round out a realistically dysfunctional family with a kind of love-hate snippy dialogue you might expect. Irwin's use of language is nicely descriptive too, and important reveals and plot points come when you need them. On top of all this, there are some scary scenes, some graphic, but never gratuitously so, others unsettling in that realising you're reading this book all alone in a dark house kind of way. This is Irwin's first novel, and it's a promising start that left me looking forward to his next project, Three Stars. The Dead Path by Stephen M. Irwin is published in Australia by Hachette. You have been listening to Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. Visit tisf.com.au for links to the featured authors' websites and for details of their publications. Stories are copyright by the author. Book reviews are copyright Keith Stevenson, 2009. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 Australian license. See our website for details. Please tune in next month for another podcast of the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it. <laughs>